The following is a presentation of Gallery Church Downtown, part of a family of neighborhood churches seeking to display God's greatness to the world. For more information, please visit gcbdowntown.com. Okay, so we will be reading from Acts 27. Um, There are some Bibles at the offering table, um, or at the table if you want one. I'm not sure what page it is. All right. um, When it was decided that we would sail for Italy, Paul and some other prisoners were handed over to a centurion named Julius, who belonged to the Imperial Regiment. We boarded a ship from Adramidium, about to sail for ports along the coast of the province of Asia, and we put out to sea Aristicus. A Macedonian from Thessalonica was with us. The next day, we landed at Sidian, and Julius, in kindness to Paul, allowed him to go to his friends so they might provide for his needs. From there, we put out to sea again and passed to the Lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. When we had sailed across the open sea off the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we landed at Myra in Lycia. There, the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy and put us on board. We made slow headway for many days and had difficulty arriving off Nidus. When the wind did not allow us to hold our course, we sailed to the Lee of Crete, opposite Salmon. We moved along the coast with difficulty and came to a place called Fair Havens, near the town of Lycia. Much time had been lost, and sailing had already become dangerous because by now it was after the Day of Atonement. So Paul warned them, Men, I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous and bring great loss to ship and cargo, and to our own lives also. But the centurion, instead of listening to what Paul said, followed the advice of the pilot and of the owner of the ship. Since the harbor was unsuitable to winter in, the majority decided that we should sail on, hoping to reach Phoenix and winter there. This was a harbor in Crete, facing both southwest and northwest. When a gentle wind began to blow, they saw their opportunity, so they weighed anchor and sailed along the shore of Crete. Before very long, a wind of hurricane force called the Northeastern swept down from the island. The ship was caught by the storm and could not head into the wind, so we gave way to it and were driven along. As we passed to the lee of a small island called Kata, we were hardly able to make the lifeboat secure, so the men hoisted it aboard. Then they passed ropes under the ship itself to hold it together. Because they were afraid they would run aground on the sandbars of Syrtis, they lowered the sea anchor and let the ship be driven along. We took such a violent battering from the storm that the next day they began to throw the cargo overboard. On the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and the storm continued raging, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. After they had gone a long time without flood, Paul stood up before them and said, Men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Then you would have spared yourself this damage and loss. But now I urge you to keep up your courage, because not one of you will be lost, only the ship will be destroyed. Last night, an angel of God, to whom I belong and whom I serve, stood beside me and said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar, and God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage... So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. On the 14th night, we were still being driven across the Adriatic Sea, when about midnight the sailors sensed they were approaching land. They took soundings and found that the water was 120 feet deep. A short time later, they took soundings again and found it was 90 feet deep. Fearing that we would be dashed against the rocks, 
They dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for daylight. In an attempt to escape from the ship, the sailors let the lifeboat down into the sea, pretending they were going to lower some anchors from the bow. Then Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, Unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. So the soldiers cut the ropes that held the lifeboat and let it drift away. Just before dawn, Paul urged them to all eat. For the last 14 days, he said, You have been in constant suspense and have gone without food. You haven't eaten anything. Now I urge you to take some food. You need it to survive. Not one of you will lose a single hair from his head. After he said this, he took some bread and gave thanks to God in front of them all. Then he broke it and began to eat. They were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. Altogether, there were 276 of us on board. When they had eaten as much as they wanted, they lightened the ship by throwing the grain into the sea. When daylight came, they did not recognize the land, but they saw a bay with a sandy beach where they decided to run the ship aground if they could. Cutting loose the anchors, they left them in the sea and at the same time untied the ropes that held the rudders. Then they hoisted the foresail to the wind and made for the beach. But the ship struck a sandbar and ran aground. The bow stuck fast and would not move, and the stern was broken to pieces by the pounding of the surf. The soldiers planned to kill the prisoners to prevent any of them from swimming away and escaping. But the centurion wanted to spare Paul's life and kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and get to land. The rest were to get there on planks or on other pieces of ship. In this way, everyone reached land safely. God bless the reading of this word. Before we talk about this shipwreck story in detail, I, I want to um, talk about this now on podcast so that those of our friends that are listening this week can go there. Generally, from Ash Wednesday through Easter Sunday, we refer to it as Lent. And um, this year, because of all that's been going on, we didn't put together an actual packet for you to follow directly. But um, our pastors discovered um, a just a really, what I feel like is a timely Lent packet. You can go online to what's called the Repentance Project, and they've released a Lent packet based upon this. And I want to share this verse, these verses with you. It's found in 2 Corinthians 7 and 8. It says this, For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you're grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces repentance, but listen, that leads to salvation without regret whereas worldly grief produces death. I mean, there's so much in that. That's why I feel like the whole Lent season unpacking that is a phenomenal 40-day journey for us to take. And so I would encourage you guys, go to the Repentance Project. You can see it. You can download it to your phone. You can follow along. You can print it out. Just know that it's like 50 pages. So if you decide to print, check it before you leave because you might hit print and come back and it's all over the floor in your house. Um, not speaking from testimony or not, um, but uh, here's the prayer that goes along with the start of every day according to the repentance prayer. I love this. Let me, let me read it to you. It says, Come Holy Spirit, I invite you to turn the attention of my heart towards you. Thank you for every good and perfect gift that comes from you. Is that not a great summary of what we already experienced today? From the dedication to the singing to the baptism, today I receive the gift of godly grief that produces repentance within me. That's a powerful sentence for us to say over these next 40 days together. I confess my need for you. 
Make me attentive to your spirit and the work that you desire to do within me. I am yours, Lord. Amen. I feel like that's obviously what Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. And now we're talking about Paul on this shipwreck journey. And I think it's really important that I remind you of one thing. Who was the book of Acts written to? Theophilus. Now again, through the power of the Holy Spirit, we can say it was written to us, the Christians. It was written to the early church. It was written to believers. We can say all those things and they're great answers. But at the end of the day, Paul wrote this letter because he had a friend that he loved so dearly that wanted to understand who Jesus was, which is why he wrote the Gospel of Luke. And then he's writing the same friend to tell him about, well, what did the early Christians actually do with their Lord? And throughout the, the book of Acts, we begin to see how much Paul is beginning to not just talk about Jesus Christ, but he's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Lord Jesus Christ has his own kingdom. And inside of that kingdom, they live differently. And he was traveling around telling people this, predominantly Gentile areas, but yet the book of Acts was written because somebody loved somebody so much so that they did the research and went on a journey to write a letter about it so that they could see Jesus clearly. Is that not an incredible summation of the love that should be found in the gospel that exudes out of us? Like, who's our Theophilus? A few weeks ago, my friend Leon Pinkett, our councilman in District 7, was here, and he referred to it um, out of going back to Acts chapter 9. Um, who's our Ananias? Like, who, or, who or, no, if you're an Ananias, who's the one that you need to go make sure the scales come off the eyes so they can see clearly? And I, I think that's so timely for us today. There's so much in the book of Acts that when we come back to like chapter 27, knowing that some of you have only heard us talk about Acts 27, you haven't heard the other 26 chapters, as a pastor, it makes it difficult to know, well, how much do we review and how much new information do we talk about so that we can walk out of here more mature in our faith in Christ? Well, today, this is a couple of things I want you to understand. Luke, in his gospel, and Luke in Acts, to Theophilus, was a great storyteller. You don't go to Luke's writings to find great points of theology. You can find understanding about God, but he does it in a narrative. He, he's doing it much like C.S. Lewis is writing a book, and in, but the book is driven by a truth about God, but it's, it's a story form. There's characters that have been developed and people that have all different types of impact on that journey that we can resonate with. And Luke is doing that in this book of Acts. But one of the things that I think is so important when you're thinking about Theophilus and you're thinking about Luke's gospel and you're thinking about the book of Acts is he was being very intentional of showing things that I think were very true about Jesus, but also were very true about Paul. Jesus, in Luke's gospel, as well as in the book of Acts, was on a journey that eventually took him to where? A city. Which city? Jesus went where? Jerusalem. Can everybody say Jerusalem? Jerusalem, all right, for those of you that didn't say anything, <laughs> I know you're listening, um, but, but so did Paul. Paul didn't want to go to Jerusalem. Jesus did. Paul knew he had to go to Jerusalem. He had been, it had been revealed to him. We also see that Jesus was picked, was picked on and picked up by the Jewish authorities. Was Paul? All right, so they had the same city destination to a point. They had the same group of antagonists that wanted to obviously kill them both. They succeeded in one. 
And Jesus was also interrogated by a Roman governor who had then taken him before um, Herod Antipas. Now, Paul won up Jesus, and he had been interviewed by how many governors? If he won up him. The math should be simple this morning. I'm not trying to trick you, all right? Trying to keep it simple. But he had two governors, and then he stood before um, uh, Herod Agrippa. But the thing was, is Jesus was sent to his death, but Paul was sent on a sea voyage to Rome. So there's this journey through Luke where you're beginning to see, wait a minute, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem to die. And then we see in Paul's journey that he's on his way to Jerusalem to be sent out to sea to get to Rome so that he could stay in trial. The thing that I think is really interesting, though, in this passage, which I don't know if we can fully comprehend, is the phrase, out to sea. And I was really drawn to this this week in preparation, because to a Jew, out to sea is a deep theological mess, so to speak, and beauty all at the same time. Because to a Jewish person, their attitude about the sea has a huge impact on what Luke could be doing and why he's giving out so much detail about what Paul was going through. Why, if Luke was writing this story, could he not just said, Paul went out to sea, and they hit a storm, and they got shipwrecked. And that, Because the goal is, is for him to get to where? Rome. Now let me just ask you guys this. Does the destination that you know you're heading to always come easily? No, it doesn't. So that could be literal for some of you. Some of you take that literally. Okay, when I get in the car and I'm driving to... So there's potholes in Baltimore. Can I get an amen? Right? They can take out your tires. I actually was with a gentleman the other day who actually hit a pothole and it caused one of these big bubbles on the side of his tire and his tires are only like four months old. Right? And I mean, that's a lot of money when you're dealing with that. I'm praying it was all under warranty for him, but I'm hearing him tell this story thinking... I need to pay more attention because I've got tires on my car. I don't need to do this. But there's so much about this attitude about the sea that I think is something that we need to understand because even though we have water in the room this morning, there's deep meaning when water is mentioned in Scripture. Can you guys understand this? There's so many places in the Old Testament that water have a huge impact on the story. We can't just read over that with our Western thinking that it doesn't mean anything. And so Paul here... Talking about this, there's some understandings that the Jewish people reading Luke's letter would have understand. Jews would have known that they're not seafaring people. Nowhere in the Old Testament did you see them building ships and going on maiden voyages. They left that to the Egyptians, to the Phoenicians, and to all these other civilizations. They're like, you guys want the sea? You can have it. Jews also thought that that, that is in the sea where monsters would come out. Jews also knew that God had made the seas. Psalms 146.6 is a beautiful description of their understanding of how God created the seas. Jews also knew that the seas were for God to do his bidding. So they had this huge fear. They weren't seafaring, but yet they knew that God had made it, and they knew that God would use it. So when Paul was setting out to sea, his understanding would be that when I get in this boat and I'm starting to go, God could use the sea to do his bidding. But all at the same time, the sea was regularly seen in a Jewish community as a dark force, a power of its own right, and a place from which dark powers might emerge. 
if you look at it, Psalms 93 actually talks about the Exodus story. But when it talks about the Red Sea being parted, it actually refers to it as a victory over a monster. So it wasn't just the Red Sea being parted in the Jewish understanding. It was that God caused a victory over a monster. That's their understanding of what it would have been like to interact with water. Some of you also that have read the Old Testament know that when Daniel had his epic vision, that was a vision that was about the future of Israel and then the coming of the Messiah and then the future victory of Israel and the people of God. In Daniel chapter 7, out of the sea came how many monsters? Four. And so to a Jewish person, they would go to the water's edge but they would always go to the water's edge looking for something evil to come out of it. That's what the impression was. And we don't even have time to get into Jonah this morning. That's a whole other story that comes from a Jewish understanding. But I, want you, I, I need you guys to understand this about Paul. Paul was not a normal Jew. Can I get you guys to just let that rest on you? So whether you have a good teaching face this morning or you have that face right now that looks like I'm causing you great pain, I want you guys to understand something. You and I can probably very simply never get to the point where we can understand, understand fully what Paul was saying because he had the Jewish understanding and he had this powerful um, moment with Christ where he could say, look, I understand all of this like he did in his defense in Acts 26. And now he's standing up saying, but let me tell you about Jesus as Lord and his kingdom and his way coming. So he could speak as an expert Jew, but he now also is speaking almost as like an expert follower of Jesus. And I hate saying it that way because some people act that way, and that's not the impression I want you to receive of that. But he was confident that the Spirit was still speaking to him. The Father was still sending angels to minister to him in times of distress. So Paul had an incredible understanding of what was happening and paul was no normal jew because paul spent time on the sea second um, corinthians chapter 11 was already written by the time paul was getting on the boat and by second corinthians chapter 11 paul had already referenced that he had been in at least three shipwrecks so this makes how many four at least four and one of the times he's talking about to the corinthian church one of his shipwrecks left him floating all night long and all day the next day. Get that image in your head. We used to, at the Outer Banks, my mother-in-law is here, and we used to do this crazy thing in the Outer Banks um, where we bought this special trailer that has these really big rubber tires on it, and you could put a jet ski on it and push it over the dune and out to the ocean. And so we used to push the jet ski into the ocean and then ride it on the ocean waves. And then we were like, that's no longer fun anymore. Let's get a ski rope and use the jet ski to pull a skier while we were in the ocean waves. And then we started to do that. And then so her, her, my, my brother-in-laws and all that were out one day doing this. And I lost my skis in the midst of trying to have fun. And so rather than coming to get me, and putting me on the jet ski to where I felt safe, my brothers decided to go looking for my skis in the ocean while I bobbed like bait. Now, I don't mind bobbing in a lake because I'm generally at the top of a food chain as long as I'm not in Florida, right? And so as, as long as I am in a northern state, you can ski, you can get on a river, you can do anything, and you're generally not going to bump up against something that can take your life. 
But in the ocean, I've watched Shark Week way too many times. So the first thought I had, and so fortunately I had one of the skis near me, and I'm floating on it with my life vest, and I'm doing this the whole time I'm in the water. Like as if, imagine what I would have felt had I hit something. I'm like, was it really helping me out? I have no idea. But they left me floating for what seemed like an hour, but it was only like five minutes. But I could not imagine what it would have been like for Paul to grasp hold of something and float all night long in the Mediterranean Sea. I could not imagine seeing the sunrise and then float all day long in the Mediterranean Sea. But yet, according to Paul's testimony, he knew that he was meant to get to Rome. His Father in heaven had made it so clear to him that he was to stand in Rome and testify about Jesus Christ So he floated all night long and floated all day the next day until he was rescued and he got out of the water because he expected to. But can I just say this? He was in the water all night long in the dark. And he was in the water all day long in the daylight. And he didn't lose his faith. He didn't lose his hope. Because he knew that the God that had spoken to him was going to be faithful even though the boat he was on was no more. I believe that Paul, in this passage through Luke's telling of the story, lived in the tension of knowing that the sea was a great enemy while believing that all enemies had been defeated by the Messiah. All right, and I put this out for you on the slide because I really want you to chew on this. That is a confidence that I long for us to have as a church. Could we grow in our faith and maturity so much so that we would be okay in the tension of being in danger but still holding on to the hope because God had made us a promise? Psalms 148.7 talks about how in the end the sea monsters are going to join into the joyous song of celebration in the new creation. Can't wait to see that. Luke In speaking to Theophilus, as we're watching this story of Paul unfold, we begin to see this narrative of the cross lived out in Paul's life. How Jesus told his disciples, you're going to have to take up your cross and follow me, which was an implication that not every day was going to be a good day. And Paul is now having moments of great joy, and it seems like now he's been on a two-year stretch of bad days. And now it seems to be getting worse. But yet I love the way N.T. Wright talked about this tension in the, in the book of Acts. The quote's on the slides for you. Not as just another example of suffering and vindication. Okay, I want to explain this. Because I don't think Luke is saying that Paul was going to die for us like Jesus died for us. Jesus' death was one, in a kind, one of a kind. What Jesus did for us, nobody else could do. But what Jesus did for us is something that is an example for how we should live in our faithfulness to God for our love for one another. And so Paul goes on here, but as a sign of the way the unique events of Jesus' death is implemented in the mission of the church to the world and the world as it groans for its new creation. I love how in this passage of Scripture, we are caught up in the dilemma of what is sovereign to God and then what 
earthly struggles we have. Because there are a lot of people that teach a gospel that if you're walking in step with Jesus and you're obeying the Father in heaven, you will get jet planes, big houses, nice cars, nice clothes, and all the other things that you want because if you're faithful to God, he's going to be faithful to you. Was Paul not faithful to God? He got four anchors. All right. There's so much to the story that's just crazy when you start thinking about the fact that if you go into the Mediterranean and snorkel, you can begin to see where there's anchors in line heading up to shore because the ship was being pushed by the wind and they start dropping anchors. And right about the time the anchor was going to tear off the back of the boat, they would cut the rope, throw out another anchor, trying to slow the boat down as it was going to its shipwreck. Paul lived that out. Was Paul being punished by God? Absolutely not. Paul wasn't being punished because he was being a rebel. He was, being, he was exactly where God wanted him to be, and he was heading exactly in the path that God wanted him to go. And there was a storm, and there was a sea, and there were rebellious people, and there was a moment where he had to assert leadership over people that should have been leaders over him. But yet God spoke to him in it, and he had a stillness and a calm. So how much of this chapter is metaphor and how much of it is fact? I don't, I don't want to solve that for you today. How much of it is just Paul's story that we should read and like, oh, wow, it was a bad day for Paul or 14 bad days in a row for Paul. But yet for you and I, I'm wondering, would we make 14 days in a row of a storm in our life spiritually without losing faith? Paul is showing how faith can be a light in dark times. That's what I love about this chapter. In Acts 27, Paul is showing you and I what it looks like for us to maintain our faith when things are dark. I love what he goes on to say in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 7, and 10. I don't have this on slides, but just listen. We have this treasure in jars of clay. We are always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. Now let me just explain to you what he's saying. He's not saying that we're carrying around a jar of clay that has in it the hope of Christ or the life of Christ. What he's saying is is that you and I are the clay. And we, wherever we go, are carrying around Christ, if we have him, right? We are carrying around. So that's the understanding in this passage. And this is what he goes on, he says, he says, so that the life of Jesus may always be made visible in our bodies. That Jesus may always be made visible in our bodies. Is he saying that you're going to always have good days so that the visibility can be seen? No. There are times where people approach you because they want Christ to pour out of you. Right? And those are sweet moments when somebody comes up to you and says, share with me the hope you have in Jesus. But there are other times where a person or circumstances come up to you and it is a hammer smashing your clay. And Jesus pours out of you. Both of those are places where Christ should be revealed. It's not just when somebody says, share with me your hope. It's when you lose income, you get a breakup, there's a job that you lost, or something happens in your life. It's not a time for you to be like, well, Jesus has given up on me. No, he's still there inside of you. Let him pour out. Let him come out of you. Second Corinthians 6 Verses 4, 5, and 9 say this, As servants of God, we command ourselves in every way. Listen to this. This does not sound like a prosperity teacher. 
He says, through great endurance, I hate those words, in in affliction, in hardship, in calamities, in beatings, in imprisonments, in riots, in labors, in sleepless nights, in hunger, as dying and sea, we are alive. I mean, that does not sound like what he was going to say. I don't, I mean, why would he say at the end of a list of terrible things that had happened to him and his companions, we are alive? I mean, you would feel like he'd be like, man, you don't want anything to do with Jesus. He's going to send you into the water. But yet he comes out of it saying, in all of those circumstances, Christ was alive, and he was alive in us, and we can find great joy in that. There are many Christians who've been taught that once they've had faith, everything ought to flow smoothly. The book of Acts replies, you have not yet considered what it means to take up your cross. One last um, point. Have you ever thought how big a risk our Father in Heaven took when he asked Jesus to take on flesh and blood? I mean, has it, I don't. I haven't spent a lot of time thinking about it, so I'm not going to assume that you have. But I want you, I want to say the question again: Have you ever thought about how much risk the Father had when He said, "Jesus, I want you to go to Earth and I want you to take on flesh and blood"? Because when Jesus took on flesh and blood, he ate like you and I, he breathed like you and I, he touched people like you and I, he slept like you and I, he was susceptible to things like you and I. In the crucifixion, his body bled when he was cut. Is that not true? Right? So Jesus taking on flesh and blood was at risk. He had to endure emotional hardship. There were people plotting to kill him pretty much since he was 12 years old, starting as a child to teach in the temple. He got noticed by the religious leaders at 12. And then as an adult, starts his ministry. And from day one, people are plotting. People that were enemies with each other started plotting in unity around killing him. He was constantly misunderstood, ridiculed, cast out, mocked by his own family. Can some of you resonate with that? The risk that Jesus took to take on flesh and blood to get to a cross so you not even could have this conversation today. There is a sovereign plan of God. I just want you guys to understand that I believe that fully. But my obedience to God's will does not always mean that things are going to go the way that I think they ought to go. One of the things that kind of stands out to me in this is that everything wasn't always cheerfully worked out in advance for Jesus so that he could sit back and just watch what God wanted for him. There were things that were kind of revealed to him along the way. I'm thankful that God revealed to him the woman at the well because that was definitely not on the path that Jesus was on. And he happened to have a great encounter with a woman at the well one day that we can learn and grow from. But neither was it So it wasn't so worked out for Jesus that he had no pain, but it also wasn't like Jesus showed up in flesh and blood like, man, I don't know what I'm to do. He knew what he needed to do. So it wasn't a blind like, okay, well, wow, I'm in Jerusalem. Wow, they're putting me on a cross. Okay, I'm dying for the sins of the world. He knew that that's what was coming. So the tension for you and I is that Many of us know what God wants for us, 
But yet the world tells us that if God loves you dearly, there's not going to be any storms. God loves you dearly, there's not going to be any shipwrecks. God loves you dearly, there's not going to be anybody trying to hurt you. God loves you dearly, there's not going to be talking maliciously about you. God loves you dearly, everything's always going to go your way. And if there's anything that is resounded in the book of Acts, I believe that Paul is saying Jesus is our example of settling what it looks like to be flesh and blood, obedient to our Father in heaven. Jesus is the ultimate example of what God's will looks like when you and I walk in it. Now let me just say this. There are some Christians that really do have it nice. I don't want to say easy because it's always, you're not them, right? But there are some people that just get a different lot in life. And if you need to, read the last couple of chapters of the Gospel of John and just say, God, am I Peter or John? Because they had an issue with whether or not one was going to be better than the other. Or one was going to have an easier road than the other. And Jesus settled that. So it's easy for you and I to go and get peace on that issue. Because God has a plan and it's about his plan. Because Paul introduces him now, not just as Jesus Christ, but as the Lord Jesus Christ. And when the Lord speaks, you obey. That means he has a plan. I love the way Paul summarized it. And this is where I'll end. Galatians 2, 19 and 20. For through the law I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Let's pray. Father, thank you for loving us so much that you gave Jesus for us. Father, we want to understand that more fully. And Father, I pray today for those in the room that have not yet confessed their belief in Jesus. Father, would they today see Jesus as their Lord and Savior? Would they see him as his great gift? Would they see him as this incredible gift of compassion and love for us in that while we are still sinners? Father, I pray that you would move in people in that way today. But Father, I also want to pray for those of us that have had faith in Christ. And we are confused because we are in a 14-day hurricane. And we are concerned about life and property and riches and, uh, and destinations, but yet the winds and the seas are around us. So, Father, would this morning be like that angel that appeared to Paul to just remind him that God was going to be faithful to get him to Rome? Father, would this service for some just be a voice in the ear saying, I'm not finished with you yet. Hang on. Stay with me. Stay faithful to me. I'm, gonna, I'm faithful to you. Father, I pray that we would not live in fear of the bad days, but we would see that, that we can be faithful as light in dark days. So, Father, would you encourage us today? Father, those that need prayer, those that need encouragement this morning, Father, would they seek it out before they leave today? And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.